I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. This will be our scripture reading this morning as we continue our series that we started last week of spending the summer in the Psalms. This will be obviously a multi-year journey, hopefully, uh, as we take 10 to 12, maybe 14 Psalms every summer and just dive in to see what God will teach us concerning himself and concerning life in a fallen world and concerning ourselves. So, Psalm 1 This reading is from the New International Version. The words are on the screen, but you may follow along in your copy as well. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, you may not be aware of this, but uh, you missed International Day of Happiness. Was anyone aware that that took place in March? Well, we had... Okay, maybe two people. International Day of Happiness. We missed it. We've got to wait till next March 20th. According to Forbes magazine, every year the International Day of Happiness is celebrated around the world. And our happiness or our pursuit of happiness is so acute as human beings that we now rank countries based upon which one is the happiest. Did you know about this? The World Happiness Report comes out every single year and it ranks countries according to a certain scale. And according to Forbes magazine, for the fifth year in a row, Finland has been named the happiest country in the world. Who would have guessed? Finland. Anyone ever been to Finland? No one. Okay. Well, I was going to ask if it made you happier, but I guess I won't do that. Denmark came in second, followed by Iceland, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. And the statisticians based the ranking on data from the Gallup World Poll and several other factors, including levels of gross domestic product, life expectancy, and more. The United States, for what it's worth, was placed 16 on the world's happiness list. And so it's interesting to me, with that in mind, that Psalm 1, with pinpoint accuracy to our deepest longings, opens with, as one man describes, not a wish, not a promise, but a joyful and passionate statement. And what is that statement? Oh, how happy is the man. Oh, how blessed is the man. How fortunate is the woman. So let me ask you a question. How would you finish that statement? 
If you were writing Psalm 1, how would you begin a psalm like this? Oh, how happy is the man who... Oh, the good fortune of the woman who... What would you fill in that blank? How we fill in that statement reveals to us what we believe to be the source of happiness. For example, if we said, oh, how happy is the man who has no troubles? Well, that reveals that lack of trouble becomes our definition of what it is to be truly happy. Or how about, oh, the good fortune of the woman who knows what she wants and who has the courage to go and get it. Well, that statement shows our definition of happiness includes the ideas of self-determination and self-actualization. So what would it take for you to consider yourself to be happy? And the follow-up question to that is, how is the pursuit of that ideal working out for you? Are you happier? Do you feel more blessed? In Psalm 1, the psalmist is laying down interpretive principles for us. By that, I mean he's giving us principles by which we are to interpret the rest of the book of Psalms. And he does so by giving his readers the key to a happy life. And as you may be able to tell by looking at your copy of the scriptures in the the English language, there are three stanzas to this psalm, three parts. So let, let us allow those three parts to be how we break down our understanding of the psalm this morning. So first, there's a contrast. Second, there are consequences. And third, there is a conclusion. Contrast, consequences, and a conclusion. First, the contrast. The psalmist contrasts the first man that we meet, the blessed man of good fortune, or the man who is happy, with three other individuals. He contrasts him with the wicked. Perhaps a more faithful or helpful translation here would be the word faithless. The word wicked points more towards the inner guilt of the man, while the word faithless points towards the reason why that inner guilt exists. This particular type of man or woman is guilty, not just because of what he or she has done, but because what he or she is relying on, trusting in the object of their faith. Clinton McCann is helpful in defining wickedness here. He says, wickedness is essentially the conviction that we're doing all right by ourselves. It's a matter of whom we trust on whom we depend. And when faithless men and faithless women join together into a council of sorts, the resulting conglomeration of thoughts and opinions and judgments on what the nature of reality is and the best way to live life, that will become, that will be based on almost entirely self as the highest good and as the highest goal. Clinton McCann, again, observes that the highest virtue of our culture is autonomy. There is no more, there is no higher good in our culture than to be truly autonomous. 
truly independent of anyone else's thoughts, opinions, or expectations. Walker Percy notes that as a result of that autonomy being our highest virtue, we are self-reliant, we are self-made, we are self-fulfilled, and we are a self-actualizing people. And where there is such a focus on self, there's a disregard for any idea of authority beyond oneself. Who are you, or anyone else for that matter, to tell me what I can do with my life or with my body? It's my life. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my happiness at stake. You have no say in the matter. Self becomes the supreme authority. For this type of faithless person and that individual becomes convinced that he or she is doing all right by oneself. But before we begin to point fingers out there as if that problem is out there, isn't that tendency towards autonomy right here and right here? I know it's true in my own heart. Much of the time, I believe I actually know what's best for me, and no one else does. And if I was given the chance without the restraining power of God through culture and through his grace, then I, was, I would impose expectations upon others so that they would fall in line with what I determined to be best for me. And when we each do that to each other, it's chaos, it's divisive, it's dangerous, it's frankly the world in which we live, right? So according to the psalmist, the happy life is not based upon self-determination because he contrasts that with the one who is blessed, who is fortunate, who is happy. Second, he contrasts the happy life with the way of sinners, the one who is blessed doesn't stand in the path of the sinners. And the word for sinners there might be translated failures. Not in the sense that they have tried their best, but they just couldn't make it. Not a failure in that sense. But in the sense that they have outrageously failed to do what God requires. They have missed the way entirely and intentionally. They have turned their back on morality the standard set by God, and they have embraced immorality. And the psalmist's point is that in order to be happy, a man or a woman doesn't need to embrace this type of hedonistic lifestyle. And this is important for us to realize as individuals who live in an area, the area of Chattanooga, right? We live in a city that loves pleasure. Whether it's pleasure from food or pleasure from drink, or pleasure from the freedom of the great outdoors and outdoor recreation. And those good gifts can quickly become ultimate gifts, or gods, before which all other good things in life must give way. And so rather than enjoying the many restaurants in our city as common grace gifts, we might turn to gluttony as an idol. And rather than alcohol being in an acceptable occasional beverage, it becomes a way to medicate the pain of life away. 
or as a pleasure to pursue all the more through drunkenness. And rather than recreation being a way to enjoy the God of nature, the outdoors themselves become in a God to which all of life ought to submit. But the psalmist writes here that the unbounded pursuit of pleasure is not where true happiness, where true blessedness is to be found. And third, he contrasts the happy man or woman with the scoffer, the mockers who are so set in their ways and their understanding that they'll listen to no one else. It's easy to look at maybe the new atheists or radical Christian deconstructionists at this point and point to them as the ones this scripture is referring to, but it doesn't take a cultural influence or a platform to live in obstinate hard-headedness about life. It may be a secure way to live in the present, to listen to no one else and to take no one else's thoughts into our own in order to shape life. It may be a secure way to live, but it isn't the true way to blessedness and to happiness and to good fortune. So the blessed happy life, the life of good fortune, it's not found in the counsel of the faithless the, or the way of those who outrageously fail to seek or please God. And it's not found in the advice of the mockers. And friends, doesn't American culture bear that out? Even though this is what the scriptures say, don't we know this to be true simply by observing the world around us? As one man says, Psalm 1 helps us to understand why one of the most highly developed, healthiest, wealthiest, and most intellectually sophisticated societies in the history of the world are consistently, or rather consistently fails to produce people who are happy. We are a nation full of men and women who seek happiness and in that search embrace pleasure, embrace autonomy, and are closed to any outside voices that differ. And hear God's word clearly on this point. Happiness is not to be found in that posture. So where is it found? We'll look at verses 1 and 2 again. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the instruction of the Lord. And on his instruction he meditates day and night. You see, the secret to a happy life is found in who you listen to and in what you talk about. You see, if a contemporary American poet was updating Psalm 1 to make it more palatable, she might say, his delight is in the entertainment of Apple+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, Hulu+, Plus, Discovery+, Plus, YouTube, and Peacock, and on its endless shows, he meditates day and night. Or he might write, his pleasure is in the um endless thumb scroll on social media. And on its TikToks, tweets, and podcasts, he meditates day and night. Or her delight is in the number of followers and likes and hearts she receives on her Instagram posts. And on this, she meditates day and night. 
So the question for each of us to answer this morning is this, who do I listen to? Who has my ear? Because this is the reality. Whomever or whatever has your ear has the key to shaping not just your behavior, but your heart and its postures. So does Hollywood have your ear or does the holy God who gives life and meaning to all things? Does culture have your ear or does the communication of God to us in his word? Do the influencers of social media have your ear most often or does the instruction of the heavenly father who made you have your ear? So to aid us in our pursuit of learning to listen to God, to learn to delight in his instruction, specifically in the Psalms, and to lean forward into that instruction, I want to recommend some resources this morning that I hope will be a help to you as we take this summer and subsequent summers to enter into the Psalms. I've already recommended this book uh, the last couple of weeks. I think I even quoted from it last week. It's called The Cry of the Soul, How Our Emotions Reveal Our Deepest Questions About God. This book will dive into some of the darkest emotions that we as human beings face and demonstrate how God has created those emotions to bring us back to himself using the Psalms. An incredibly helpful book. I can't recommend it highly enough. To dive into the Psalms specifically for your own study, study, Crossway puts out an ESV journaling Psalter. It has the Psalm on the left-hand side of the page and uh, a journaling page on the right-hand side so that you can journal your thoughts and your prayers and your observations of the text as you go through it. Another book that would be helpful as you study the Psalms would be Tim Keller's devotional book, The Songs of Jesus. I love the title of that for a book on the Psalms, the songs of Jesus. These Psalms are the songs that Jesus, our Lord, would have sung as he was growing up as a genuine Israelite child, as he went to and from the temple, as he worshiped privately, and as he faced his darkest hour. He quotes repeatedly from the Psalms, and Tim Keller works through each of the Psalms um, for a year to make it all the way through 150 psalms. Another one that would be an introduction to the psalms, learning to love the psalms, is just a really helpful book by uh, Godfrey, is his last name, that takes you into the structure of the psalms and helps you to study them on your own and gives you principles to do that. And then I save, in my opinion, I, I love books too much. It's hard to say this is the best among these for the last, especially when there's an actual copy of the Psalms in front of me. Um, but this one is excellent. This is uh, a new devotional translation called Psalms by the Day by Alec Motier. Alec Motier was an Old Testament scholar that spent literally his entire life studying the Old Testament scriptures. He translates the Psalms. He divides them uh, into structures so you can see how they parallel one another, how they relate to one another, and then he'll give you a brief devotional write-up that will help you dive deeper into one and apply it to your own life. The notes alone on this where he makes um, statements regarding why he translated certain words certain way, uh, those notes themselves are worth the price of this book. 
So these are just some resources that have been helpful for both Elizabeth and I in our study. Uh, you'll, you've noticed already that I do this frequently. I love books. Um, books have shaped me uh, to where I, who I am today. And I hope some of these, one of these even, will be a helpful um, tool for you. All right, let me set these down. Okay, so he's laid out, the psalmist has laid out the contrasts. He's contrasted the, the blessed man with several other individual. And he's told us that who you hear determines your happiness. And so secondly, he's going to bring us into the consequences. What are the consequences of who you choose to hear? Look at verses 3 through 4. He, the one who meditates on the instruction of God, that one is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, one of the dangers of preaching expositionally on the Psalms is that we can exegete it to death. We pull apart this poem into so many pieces that it is no longer a thing of beauty. It's just a list of terms and ideas and propositions and definitions. But here is where we actually get to lean into the poetry of this psalm. So he describes the blessed man like a tree. And this image would be a well-known one for someone who'd experienced the dry Middle Eastern summer climate. The only way a tree could survive and thrive to its maximum potential was to be located near a water source. And a water source that was constantly being renewed because it was flowing, not a water source that was stagnating. And the one who meditates on God's word, by the way, that word for meditate carries the idea of mumbling. That's why some translations translate it talking. It's like mumbling it to ourselves over and over again, reflecting on it, thinking about it, talking about it to ourselves. The one who does that and who delights to do so is like just such a tree. He or she will thrive, will prosper. There'll be a fruitfulness and a faithfulness to their lives. They will be rooted, fruited, persevering, and prospering. And let's be honest, isn't this what we all want? We may have differing definitions of what it means to be truly fruitful or to prosper, what it means to be truly alive or to truly live. But he's tapping here on a universal human longing. It takes some cataclysmic tragedy in someone's life to get them to the point where they say, I truly don't want to thrive. I don't want to prosper. I don't want to feel alive. And what the psalmist is doing is tapping on that universal human longing and saying, it is answered in only one place. This longing to prosper is answered only in truly delighting in God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him. Delighting in God, who, in the God who speaks, and delighting in what the God who speaks says. For the one who will choose that path, 
the seeds of his or her own prospering is found in the very activity that he or she engages in. Life itself is found in the words of God. Do you believe that? Do you and I truly believe down deeply that life is not found in our next meal or the medical intervention of the medical establishment? It's not found in the good gifts that we receive, but life itself, true life, is found in the words of God. The one who will live in that instruction from God, the one who will love that instruction, who will learn that instruction, who will talk about that instruction from God, that one will find the happy life, the good life, the life that he or she longs for. But what's the alternative? Verse 4, the wicked are not like this. They're not like a tree. Instead, they're like the chaff which the wind blows away. I had our scripture reading from the NIV this morning because it translates that verse very strictly. The original language begins this verse in a very terse way. Not so the wicked. You have this beautiful image of the tree that makes you immediately long to be like the tree and then you're smacked across the face with not so the wicked. Not so the faithless ones who are relying on themselves and who think they're doing all right on their own. Not so the mockers. A tree of bountiful fruit and beautiful foliage. Is that what you want? Not so the wicked. No, they're like the chaff, which the wind drives away. When grain was harvested, it was then beaten so that the outer shell would break open from the kernel inside, like this picture demonstrates. It would be mounded together in a pile before the worker would then take forkfuls of it and toss it into the air. The worthless outer shell, which was literally good for nothing, was light and would be blown away by the slightest breeze while the heavy pieces of good kernels would fall back to the ground in a pile. So the chaff would be blown away, the grain would remain. So why is the chaff such a good description in the poet's mind for the faithless? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. Because like chaff that has no weight, that's useless, that simply blows away, so the faithless will not be able to stand in the judgment. And here we come to third, the conclusion. The conclusion. The faithless ones are not like the faithful ones in this way, as one man says, in the way that things work out for them. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Now, the judgment and assembly spoken of here probably referred to in the poet's mind on the surface to the judicial proceedings that would take place 
at the gate of an ancient Near Eastern city. That was where the civil judicial proceedings would take place. If you had a complaint against a neighbor, you would go to the gate of the city where the elders were. You would lay out your case against them. They would have the opportunity to lay out their case, and the elders would decide who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And based upon how God has ordered life to work, the faithless, wicked man would not have a leg to stand on in proceedings like that. But the analogy goes much deeper than someone simply not being able to stand in justice at the gate of the city. For all of a sudden, what does the poet do? He introduces, reintroduces the name Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God. So this is more than merely a human-level court of justice. There's a greater justice, a greater judgment in view here. And the psalmist seems to be giving his readers a way to read the entire rest of the book of Psalms. Because let's be honest, if we were to read from this point on through the first third of the book of Psalms, we would see men and women who delight in God's law, but who are not thriving like a tree. They're not fruitful. They're not foliaged. The Psalms, as one man describes, are filled with prayers issuing from the experience of attack, from shame, fear, isolation, divine abandonment, divine anger. And these prayers could give the impression that such experiences, those kind of experiences, those that we read about in the rest of the book of Psalms, that those are characteristic of the life of the godly. But Psalm 1 is the declaration of faith for the follower of God. When we declare its truth, we are echoing the words of our Lord Jesus who said, fortunate those who hear the words of God and keep them. Life on this broken earth seems to indicate that the psalmist had no clue what he was talking about here. Meditation and delight in God's instruction doesn't actually seem to result in a life of prospering, does it? Often. So the psalmist sets us up well to interpret what is actually going on. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seed of mockers, all of it seems so seductive and alluring and prosperous. But that way leads to ruin ultimately. If not in this life, without question in the life to come. For they have spurned God's instruction. So how can it be anything but that? If life is found in the words of God and God's words have been rejected then how can the exact opposite of life not be the end? And while following God may sometimes feel like life in a dry, hot summer, devoid of nourishment and a waterless world, in reality, only that way of life leads to standing secure, fruitful, faithful, prospering until the end. But let's ask a bigger question. How do we know this to be the case? 
is following this psalm a blind leap into the dark? Do we simply need to take the psalmist at his word and hope for the best? Hope that the guy actually was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that he didn't really mess things up. Well, consider this. There was once a man who perfectly delighted in the instruction of God. He refused the way of the faithless. He refused to disregard the ways of God, but embraced them fully and finally, unlike those who outrageously and intentionally disregard them. He walked in the way of God. He delighted in his instruction, and his name was Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 and tells us that Jesus said those words. This, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law, your instruction is within my heart. Jesus Christ delighted in the instruction of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. So let me ask you the question, was he the most blessed and the most happy? Consider that he was accounted or counted among the wicked by his own generation. In fact, when the time came for him to stand before the court of human opinion, did he stand? No, he was unable to stand in their favor. And when the time came for him to stand before actual religious and civil courts, he did not stand. He was found guilty and he was condemned. And so the perfectly righteous one, the perfectly faithful one, the one who perfectly delighted in the law of God became as one truly wicked and one truly faithless. Because our sins... Our faithlessness was laid upon his shoulders. And while this psalm tells us that God knows the way of the righteous, Yahweh turned his back upon Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, who of all men, according to Psalm 1, ought to have been the most blessed became cursed. But why? So that we, who are the wicked, who are the sinners, we who are the mockers, might one day stand ourselves and prosper in the judgment so that we may stand in the congregation of the righteous. Not because we ourselves are truly righteous, but because the only truly righteous one willingly laid down his righteous life so that it might be given to us. Because the truly righteous one willingly took upon himself our wickedness, our curse, that it brings the ruin it carries so that we might experience his blessedness, his good fortune, his life, the happiness and joy 
that he alone deserves. But God did not leave Jesus to be cursed. In God's final judgment, Jesus' righteous standing was authoritatively declared. The Father resurrected his Son from the grave, gave him life so that all who recognize their position as walking in the counsel of the ungodly, as standing in the way of sinners, as sitting in the seat of the mockers, that all those who realize that they are not the blessed man of Psalm 1, but rather they are the cursed man of Psalm 1. That all those men and women who realize they are the perishing ones, when they seek refuge and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ for their faithfulness, faithlessness rather, and their failure, they will be placed in him, the truly blessed man. So the psalm teaches us this. What you choose to hear will determine your happiness. So if you have chosen to hear the instruction of Jesus, whose first sermon was repent and believe the gospel, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in him alone, then your eternal blessedness, your eternal happiness has been secured by Jesus. And for us then, this psalm calls us to three activities which are actually all bound together. Number one, worship. Jesus is the prime example of the blessed man of Psalm 1, truly and perfectly. And he is that blessed man so that you might experience his blessedness. He is the prospering man so that you might experience his prosperity. He is the fruitful man so that you might bear fruit in him. And he is all of these things on our behalf through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And you can be the righteous man or woman of Psalm 1 because Jesus is him. And you are in him. Number two. Not just worship, but delight. The instruction of God includes both direction and commands. And in our modern way of thinking, you shouldn't put command and delight together. Those two things should not be tied together. But Hans Frey helps us to understand why that is the case in our modern mind. He says... Once, people read the scriptural story and sought to set their own story in its context. But since the 18th century, we are more inclined to set scripture's story in the context of ours. It is our story that provides the criteria for deciding whether the scriptural story is true and relevant. We measure scripture's story by ours. But when we see the scriptural story to be what it truly is, the instruction of God, 
including both direction and commands, telling us about the nature of reality, how it came to be, and where it's going, and why all that matters for us today, then it becomes a delight for us to place ourselves in that grand story, to harmonize the pain of our circumstances to the delights that are promised us. It becomes a challenge and a joy to work to shape our experiences of life in this world according to the Bible story of meaning and of the meaning of life in this world. So we choose to hear it, and we find in what we hear our temporal and eternal happiness secured. Finally, meditate. Worship, delight, meditate. And we're back to the question, what has your ear these days? What has your time? If you and I choose to delight ourselves in God's instruction, then we're promised that it will bring both stability and stamina, rootedness and fruitfulness. So practically, brothers and sisters, what does that mean this morning? That means we need to confess and repent. We need to turn from some things. We need to confess our lack of time and attention that we give to meditation and contemplation of the word of God. As Tim Keller says, it's knowledge without contemplation that's the reason for my failures to live holy. And we need to repent from our unbelief that in Jesus, we always prosper. I admit before you publicly, I don't always believe that. I live as if this is true. In Jesus, sometimes I prosper. And one day, I will prosper, undoubtedly. But rarely do I believe that today, right now, in this moment, in Jesus, I prosper. Victory over sin, temptation, and unbelief is ours in Jesus. We just live as if it isn't. Our actions and posture betrays our unbelief. So we are called by the Spirit this morning to joyfully repent of that unbelief and to return to the sweetness of the gospel. Christ died for our sins so that we might live, truly live, through his righteousness. So friends, hear the message of Psalm 1. Who or what you choose to hear this week will determine your happiness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the blessed man who perfectly meditated upon, delighted in, your instruction all the way to the cross for us. And so now as we turn our attention to reflect upon his sacrifice, Father, would you root this reality deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls that the blessed man became the cursed man so that we could be blessed in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.